Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earle. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. This is episode 69, and I'm here today with Dennis Cooley. Welcome, Dennis. It's Hello. great to be on the show. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful. And so, of course, we're doing this on Zoom because uh, Dennis is in Manitoba and I'm here. And anyway, we're not allowed to meet in person at this stage, but uh, it's, it's really great. I'm going to start, Dennis, by reading your bio, if, if that's okay with you. <laughs> All right, let's do it. All right. Dennis Cooley was raised near Estevan, Saskatchewan, retired English professor from the University of Manitoba. He resides in Winnipeg. He is a founding editor of Turnstone Press. He has three new books out this year, The Bestiary and Cold Press Moon from Turnstone Press and The Muse Sings from At Bay Press. Both presses are in Manitoba. And I'll, I'll put up links to all three books um, and uh, so you can, you can get them as you, as you like. So in preparation for this episode, I have had the delight of reading and rereading all of the works of yours that I have in my possession. I thought there were 17, but there are only 15 of them. So that's, that's all I have, including the new releases. And so I've been, a, I'm, I'm a huge fan of yours. I began reading your work with the Bentleys back in 2006, and I've been a fan ever since. Your wordplay and soundplay, vivid descriptions, unique imagery, your embodiment of rebels and obscure figures from history, your willingness not to take yourself too seriously, and that, especially that essay on breaking and entering the line, you've been a great influence on my writing. And uh, both you and Robert Croach came along for me when I was feeling like a weirdo for wanting to play when I made poetry, for wanting to write about something other than myself, for not uh, being willing to be in one camp or another, but mixing it up, mm. for wanting to take take direct talk directly about issues related to the being human all the grotesqueries and sensualities of the body for the long poem format and the poem sequence i'm glad you're on the show and i can i can thank you in person so to speak well thank you so much that that, that summary uh, uh, kind of says it all in a lot of ways yeah so i really appreciate that that's a, that's a good summary of many of the interests i think we can go home now. No, just we're already home, so we can't leave. Okay. So today we're celebrating three of your newest works, but we'll likely get into some conversation about your er earlier works. I, I think we're three books at the same time is quite quite a quite a lot. To, uh, that's so wonderful. I'm, uh, it's great to have that opportunity. So I'd like to talk about each of the books individually, and I thought we'd start with the bestiary. And uh, I guess I'll ask you first to give us what I, I call a cook's tour of the book. <laughs> uh, sure. Well. This had its beginnings as much as I can identify beginnings or one ever can. Uh, you know, the famous answer when someone says to the painter, how long did it take you to paint that canvas? And he said, all my life, uh, which is, seems flippant, but in some sense it really is true, isn't it? But here I can actually talk about uh, when I got going in this, uh, what year was, I'm not sure, about four years ago, five years ago, maybe. I worked as I tend to on, on batches of poems, and I had running a whole series of B poems that just came pouring out, and I had dozens and dozens of those. And I was working also on crow poems. Right. And dozens and dozens of those. So then I got thinking, maybe I could put these together in a book, and I could call a manuscript, I could call the, the, uh, the uh, birds and the bees. Uh, so I started working on that, and I thought, well, maybe I could do something a little richer or wider than that, and started looking for writing and finding early versions or notes for uh, poems. So this eventually became this book that we call the, the uh, Bestiary. And, the, uh, and it works basically with small animals and domestic animals. Uh, so I don't have uh, sort of carnivorous creatures or exotic creatures in here particularly, no they tend to be more, more at hand. And they come from my memories of the farm, from my observations in a backyard here in Winnipeg, and to the yard at our cottage in Winnipeg Beach, where, through which a lot of birds and small creatures pass. So I gathered those up and, uh, and I got, got a book out of this that somebody was willing to publish, and uh, there it is, the bestiary. Used it on a sort of literary model, is a tradition 
the bestiary. Right. Already. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, do you think you could read something from the book? I have to read a book from something from here. I'm going to read, uh, you had mentioned uh, in an earlier correspondence that one of the poems that caught, caught your inter yeah. interest was a, um, one of the B poems. Yes. So I'll yeah. read one of those. This one's called uh, B Longings. Yeah. From wax rooms they step into the light and brighten it. Horse plenty knows the clapping of hands and the clinking of brass pleases bees. The pungent and blinding mist of their visits across the clover and goldenrod, the return to the perfectly shaped pockets. They spend a lot of time in the sauna, adjusting their leggings, sniffing pole and sipping tea. Their gilded motions ache with blue burning sugar. My father, who no short ribs or sheep shanks, no lace leg, yet dreams of surpassing Rumpelstiltskin, is spinning honey into a tub, smoke buffer in hand, and wrapped in a keeper's unearthly duds, tramples through the wrong lung grass, and when he bumps into the hive, we can hear the terrible longings shake their bodies, let out a sudden and awful roar. Thank you. That's great. I almost want to clap. It's so great to hear you read live and, and, and just, this is wonderful. And, and that poem, the only, the, I, I'm so bad at memorizing any kind of poetry or lines from poetry, but the, the only, one of the few lines of Tennyson's I ever memorized was just this little bit, the murmuring of innumerable bees. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. love that sound. Like I love the onomatopoeia of that. You do that so well with your with yours. And I love the pollen. Uh, I love the stockings that both the crows wear have leggings too. I find that interesting. That they, and now that I look at them, I'm thinking, yeah, they do. You know. So I, I thought that it's really good the way you can do that. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, these creatures are all heavily humanized, aren't they? That uh, the sense of fellow creatureness and that uh, we're well, as, as opposed close to being. To them. Yeah, as opposed to being from a distance, like the old nature poems, you know, the 19th century, where the the the, the poet was uh, kind of above everything, right, and the, yeah. not part of it. So I, I found that to be, I, I love that about your writing. Good. Thank you, yes. Uh, so I sorry. So. Yeah, really, if I said, oh, I hate that about your writing, we'd be done. <laughs> no, I was kidding. That would be really weird. I, I don't think I would waste my time on that kind of a podcast, but uh, yeah. No. <laughs> so I, I starting really from the very front, I, I really love the cover art by Sterling Clavel. The way the crow looks like it's made of some kind of material like thread or wire. And also the drawings inside by Gail Troussier. I don't know if that's how you pronounce her last name. I wondered if you have an in input or say on the cover of this book and your books in general. I'm looking at a stack of your books now, looking uh, thinking about the covers. So Yeah, uh, the uh, yeah this book, the, the cover for this is one that uh, that I found. this was done by, as you say, Sterling Clavel. He's my son-in-law. Oh. Uh, and uh, he, had, he had sculpted this stunning uh, crow uh, out of heavy wire that uh, I, I, I'd long loved and thought maybe that would work. That would be a great image. So he said, sure, of course, I use it. And Turnstone agreed. So there it is. It was very hard to photograph, though. Yeah, I was going to say it would be hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, that, there's that. And uh, they, um, with the in, in the interior art, they uh, checked with me, Turnstone, and said, what do you think? And, and in fact, they even quibbled a, a little bit, uh, said, they, these, can they be a little more playful or, or silly or goofy, uh, the, the animals? Mm -hmm. uh, so they became a little bit more than that in the text, which I, I really like. But answer generally, yes, I've been pretty lucky with uh, small presses, small literary presses. They invariably say, have you got any thoughts or preferences or recommendations? Uh, not as if I've de uh, particularly decided and directed the covers in many of the books, but they always look for, uh, for your approval at the very least and usually solicit input. Great, great. Well, it is really good, and I, I, I think that's great. I thought I was pretty sure it was a sculpture, but then I thought maybe it was a drawing, so I wasn't, I wasn't one hundred percent sure. But uh, this one, yeah, uh, the covers. I'll tell you the story. Of this one, uh, yeah. we were looking for a cover for Cold Press Moon. I know we're going to get there in a minute, but uh, a word about the cover. We were visiting with friends and in, uh, uh, in um, Willow by Gimli. Okay, uh, yeah, I know, I know Gimli. And, uh, yeah, well, I, I sitting having a beer with 
friend and I look up on the windowsill and there's this picture. And I said, look at that. Uh, so what is this? She said, well, my, my, my niece did this. And I said, I wonder if, if, if we could use this. It'd be perfect for this book. And she <laughs> said, oh, I think so. Let me check with her. So anyway, here it is. This came uh, from her niece uh, who gave us uh, permission to use the cover. And it, it's, uh, I think, a beautiful image for the book. Yeah, it's a serendipity like that that really that can yeah. be really great for the books. Yeah, that, that's great. So the book uh, you've dedicated the book to Robert Croach and referenced him and his and and his work within the book. And a lot of your writing references him. References him. In fact, I was just um, I was just going through the vernacular muse and the 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 opening um, quote is "The bastards can't keep us from talking" by him. So I was really happy to see that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a, a lot of your writing references. I feel like you have similar aesthetics in your work. You've also written a collection of essays about his work, which I unfortunately can't get right now, but at the home place, Essays on Robert Croach's pro Poetry, which I'm looking forward to when I can find it. And I gather from what I've read that you got to know one another when he came to U of Manitoba to teach, maybe, maybe, but maybe there's more to the story. But can you talk a little about your history with uh, Robert Croach? Sure. The, uh, I remember the exact day when I met him. He <laughs> was in town launching this book. Uh, the Stonehammer Poem. This is 1977. That year, the uh, University of Manitoba students had writers in every week, uh, all year long. And uh, Coach was coming to town, and uh, my good friend next door, uh, neighbor writer David Arnson, says, you coming to this launch coolie? And I said, yeah. I, got, I said, how do you pronounce his name? And he said, Cratch. It's Robert Cratch. So I went to hear Robert Cratch <laughs> read from this book, and, and I, I was just... Uh, uh, so excited uh, I'm pleased to hear him read and to meet him yeah uh, he was just my my favorite by far of those dozens of people who came through reading um, so that was where my first experience of him and I've been a good friend of his um, ever since and seen a, a lot of him I got I got the chance to meet both of you um, only one time at the postmodernism conference here at um, University of Ottawa, organized by Robert Stacy in two thousand eight, and it, it was so great. I had I had written a, a, a chapbook in homage of the Sad Phoenician, and so it called the Sad Phoenician's Other Woman. It was published by Above Ground Press, and I was so nervous, but I I had to take it to and give it to him because of course I, I it was totally an homage. It was by the woman who loved adverbs, so I had to uh, do that and. Uh, he was quite lovely about it, and, and it was just lovely to spend time with him. And afterwards, he, he sent me a nice email about how much he liked it. So that was like, that's like a highlight for me. It was, it was really great. But you know, I, I love his writing. Again, both of you have been, have been the major influences. Was well, he was, also, he was also really supportive uh, of, of people and encouraging them and, and uh, enabling, you know, that uh, pretty, pretty uh, special in so many ways. But uh, yeah. he always uh, did what he could. To, to make writing known and to introduce people. That's it. There's someone I, I really wish was still with us. I really do. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm sad that he's no longer here, but uh, there you go. The poetry goes on and, and his work is still uh, wonderful to uh, read both his poetry and his fiction. I, it's funny, I, I only started to read his fiction uh, in the last, well, maybe five years as the crow flies killed me. It was so great. Like it's so, such an incredible book. Like I, I laughed so hard and I mean, that's it. I, I love to be able to laugh with, with writing. I don't know. But uh, so now that we, we, we've seen a, a little bit of um, a sample of um, the, your, your poem from the bestiary and sound has always been an important part of your work as we can see from that poem and I had to stop my reading to, to read the poems aloud to myself and my husband several times and just marvel in the joy of the sounds and I see it just shocks me I don't shock is the wrong word but I love the way you can get sound so right I don't know how you do that like the water's edge um, um, for instance um, sorry i'm moving my pages around ducks in their waxy squabbles and frogs splunk into the soupy green splop splop i mean splops bloop i mean those it's just so fun you know i really love that so yeah and th th there's all kinds of poems that i had to um i had to i had to read aloud to my husband all the way through actually from throughout throughout my reading of, of i spent about two weeks reading your your books and I'd be, I'd be, we'd sit in the in the office. My husband and I share an office, and he was doing his thing, and I was doing mine. And I'd say, "Can I just stop and read you a poem?" And he'd be like, "He's not a poet, but he he like he, he gets to hear me all the time." So for the last almost twenty years, so uh, you know, and so I had to stop and read him. 
read him uh, your uh, your poems. And I read him a lot from This Only Home, actually, because he's a space fan, too. So he loved those ones especially. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So Yeah, hardly anybody knows that book. Yeah, they should because it's good. Well, I, that, that's the funny thing. There were there were there were books that came out that like I mean I just I sort of I at one point um, I had I just after the Bentleys we got a bunch of your a uh, bunch of your books and then they sat on my shelf and I kind of read them little bit by little bit here and there, but then for this I just sat and 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 spent the two weeks and uh, there were books like Irene and This Only Home that really took me by surprise. They were so they were they were moving and and, and Irene about your mother. It was you know so so yeah it was, it's. It's a, it's a good experience to binge read an author, some, a poet sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like, like with Netflix, you can binge read coolly. So there you go. But uh, back to the sound. Okay, so are, are there poems uh, you read aloud or memorized for their sound? Uh, do you, did you have poems read aloud to you as a child? Like how did you become such a close listener and render of sound? I, the ear, the ear, I guess. Yeah, I've been thinking about this. Uh, yeah, you're, you're wondering. I, I, I can't remember particularly my parents reading things uh, to me uh, yeah. as a child. I mean, they must have, but I don't have any particular memories of that. They both were uh, 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 pretty uh, avid readers, my father in particular. Uh, but I think where I, in my education training and whatever, where I maybe really got on to this whole business was my grade school teacher who um, was um, had a real passion for writing and uh, he taught us all kinds of basic things but also uh, had uh, the whole gang of us uh, writing things that uh, were of our own making. Uh, so he was an enormous influence. He had us memory. This was part of the teaching in those days. You'd, you'd learn by heart, you'd say, you'd yes. memorize, learn them by heart. And so you'd recite them. And uh, I think everybody in those classes loved doing that. that uh, that, 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 that you hear those sounds, those rhythms, and I suppose the satisfaction of the rhymes uh, falling, into, falling into place as well. So we did those things, uh, learned by heart. Uh, it, it's related, I think, to a pleasure that one of my colleagues said once. She remembered once as a young kid being asked by her aunt, why do you like reciting those poems? And she said, I remember, I, I said, I like the feel of the sound of the words in my mouth. Yeah, that's it. And I guess just perfect because it's so physiological. Your your whole body makes the music. Uh, you do the dance. You make those. You hear the sounds. You make the sounds. Uh, and it's maybe unrelated to the the kind of um, apparent difficulty or reluctance that many people feel when they hit poetry. So I don't know what to do with it because they often they don't hear it listen to it yeah yeah it. don't yeah. scream through slow down and listen to it hear it you know that's it i i often tell the story uh, that uh, when i was in grade seven we were we were the the, the teacher was um giving us a class on uh, wordsworth's uh, i wandered lonely as a cloud Right. And uh, the teacher said what does the poem mean that's a deadly question and yeah. i said the sound of bells and oh, it was, it, well, yeah. it was the wrong answer in that class, and yeah. and then that meant that I I took it out on poor Wordsworth. I hated Wordsworth. I hated poetry, yeah. and never really looked at it, listened to it or, again. Because for me, the sound was really important. I grew up. Um, my father always recited uh, Victorian morality poems to me and Shakespeare. I still know things. I speak severely to my child. I beat her when she sneezes. She only does it to annoy because she knows it teases. And other horrible poems of that nature, but I but still know that. Really <laughs> yeah, that's it. But the other side of that too is is not so much that is 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 that, but there's also the way you're able to kind to recreate. To me, what seems as as a city girl, but still, what seemed like pretty accurate sounds of the way animals sound, and I, or and the way things sound, not just animals, but the way the way it's not in nature or anything really sounds. Or, some things, I can't even remember what this thing sounding like sewing machines or like you just get it right. I don't know. I, how do you do that? I, how did you learn that? Or did you, or just it's natural for you somehow? Or yeah. What? Well, <laughs> I don't, how do you want to ever, ever explain mm -hmm. those things or know how they happen? But, uh, but I had, uh, growing up in the farm, uh, I was the only son. I had three sisters. I was oppressed by women uh, yeah. all my life. Uh, two daughters. <laughs> 
but I, 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 I spend a lot of time by myself wandering around and, and uh, with the creatures and I uh, would call to them, talk with them. The, we had pigs would in fact often actually yeah. talk with them, call yeah. them, they'd call back. And there's, I have one poem in that book in which the, this young farm kid uh, is out there with the pig and they're talking to each other. The kid's dad shows up. This is for a while, and he smiles, shakes his head. He says, "You swear you were talking you to." <laughs> yeah. So I, I heard, I heard these creatures, and I would kind of simulate the sounds. That's one of the theories, right? Where language comes from, simulating sounds. Yeah. Uh, or how they, how it develops. I mean, there are many theories, but that's I think one of them about uh, uh, that uh, how how our, how we developed uh, language as a species. But I don't know. Uh, how do you explain the interest or the, or the or the response? But good for for me, it's a lot of it's just pleasure. That's, That's it. it. Hear the sounds and make them. <laughs> I'm a little kid. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I like that to uh, you. I mean, I, I, that's why I have to read all your poems. That's why it takes me a while to go through your book. I think for this, I thought I would, I would, you know, well, I'll just go through and read a little bit. So I'll have questions to ask. And yeah, I couldn't stop. I had to, I, I had to, I had to go slowly through the book. So, you know, <laughs> which is, a, which is a great thing. So I guess the, um, the next thing to talk about is, is I guess, uh, imagery and all the books. I mean, the thing is a lot of these questions, although I'm talking about them specifically in reference to the book we're currently talking about, the bestiary, the bestiary, whichever way you like to pronounce the, the word. But, um, you know, I, I, a lot of it's relevant to all the other books too, really, in, in a lot of different ways. So imagery is is really, um, I really enjoyed amazing similes, off kilter and, and expected, and they work so well, like grateful as a logger, logger in the black forest, dreaming sawmills from making hay, for instance, that one really got to me. A lot of play with uh, autonomy and synecdote, for instance, and rhetorical devices in general, which I, which I find, the owl is a bowl, open, as the moon is round, for instance, uh, just so many. They're they're so great, and so I, I. There's no intelligent question I have about this, but maybe you can talk a little bit about your work with, uh, with uh, lang language from that point of view, imagery, figurative language, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I actually, actually like simile. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but many uh, poets these days uh, have decided that it's a, simile is a is a disgraced. Uh, trope yeah. and should be avoided all, at all costs. Uh, I guess out of the notion that somehow this is failing to represent the world is really there. But I've got a problem with that argument because all writing inevitably is a mediation. There's no way around it. All our experiences are mediated. There is no naked access to a real world. Yeah. Right? They're all cultural formations that we enter and practice and we revise and rewrite and whatever. But uh, but you're you're always in the position of having some um, some membrane whatever uh, between you and the world there. But that uh, it's it's never something that you can access directly or or, or uh, uh, easily or properly or fully. I guess. So I guess part of it is just the pleasure then of saying, well, what might what's your sense of the experience? How do you understand it? Uh, um, and we do this off definitions. Uh, what is what is cold? Well, it's not warm. It's not, it's right. not this. Uh, definitions always contain at least their implied opposite. They're always in that kind of training, saying, what does it resemble? And what is that unlike? This kind of series of way, ways of knowing things, I think. Um, but anyway, I like doing it anyway. You know, how, how might you name or speak of this this creature and the argument of course if it's reasonably successful you say well this does catch something of, of that experience or convey a sense of what the experience might be or might have been for somebody i don't know this is any good is, is any you used to this response yeah yeah no it's interesting because i was thinking too about how 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 is sort of similes aren't trendy right now in in uh, contemporary poetry for some but uh i don't know for me it, it i mean it, i mean it just it's it's part of the for me, it's part of the play, and I really like it. Like, um, uh, there's just so much in here. Um, I like, I like the birds. For instance, in your poems, tend to write on the sky, and I mean, and you know what happens too. You go, I go out, and when if I've seen, if I've read something like that, 
I'll go out and now I'll look at the sky that way. And it, so it, it, it brings, it's, it's still reality. It's, it, it's just being able to, to turn it a little bit, to look at it a little bit differently. And then it brings, yeah. it bring, and of course I love this, a sense of magic. And to me, that's, that's part of the magic, you know, yeah. so. I, I used to cope a lot, actually, that uh, things that were written in the world. I, I did I did an anthology one time. I edited an anthology, which I called Inscriptions, oh. uh, that, that we don't uh, describe the world exactly, uh, right, because we're not somebody showing what's there. And we really were inscribing, we're writing uh, into oh. that world. Uh, yeah. And so that metaphor runs through a lot of things that I write. That's great. That's great. That sounds good. Another another thing in in your writing is the prairie climate, which is which is here especially, but it's elsewhere in the prairies in general. The dust, the wind, and the cold. The wind windy sweep of Estevan, for instance. Um, um, so I've loved your inclusion of the prairie as a landscape and as a character of its own. Um, thinking of the Bentleys and and uh, country music, but also other books. Um, so I've heard you say that critics from Ontario don't pay much attention to this aspect of your work. I don't remember where I heard that, so if, if I'm wrong, I apologize. But I think it's key. I did get a chance to read a little bit of, um, of um, so I'm just turning pages, the vernacular muse in, in prairie poetry. I didn't read the whole thing because I was just agreeing with it all the time. So I was like, you know, so, but I already know this. Well, no, it's not that I already know it, but it's just that, um, yeah, I, I could see where you were coming from. But I guess, I guess, one little question is: is, is Estevan, Saskatchewan, and the prairies? Would you say they're muses for you? We'll get to the muse sings later, but it's still a possibility to talk about, I guess. Yeah, the uh, I, I bear my inscriptions pretty heavily and pretty openly of uh, yeah. uh, my upbringing, uh, up, upbringing, uh, so that that. The imprint, imprints are strong, and uh, and I draw on them. Uh, uh, the I, I suppose, uh, depending on what you do with these things, you may well be accused, and probably will be accused, no matter what you do with them, with being nostalgic or sentimental or whatever. Uh, but looking at your past and drawing your past is not inherently nostalgic. It depends on what you yeah. do with it, how you view it. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, those those inscriptions are there, and I I keep drawing in one way or another. Uh, out of them, um, so so they're important uh, for sure. One thing though is the prairies, uh, as, as you summarize those particular images, sound pretty yeah. bleak, and brown and barren, and uh, I mean that that has been part of the history in various ways and times and places and places. But it also is in many ways is 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 a uh, is uh, a landscape that's more varied and and yeah. uh, and flourishing and flowering than that too. Uh, yeah, I mean it, it's true that I mean the, the books are populated with um, with plants and all kinds of and the wheat and all kinds of different images too of 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 and certainly the birds and different creatures. So yeah, it's, sure. it's definitely not. I definitely it's like people. Well, people think that about the desert, right? So they, they yeah. that the desert is full of full of all kinds of um, yeah flora and fauna yeah. and animals and stuff. So right. although. Yeah, so I can I can see that winter itself is 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 it could be easily described as a creature in its own. It's you know it's so um, you know it's 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 certainly so alive and and moving, right? So uh, right, and there's so few poems written about winter. Are I there? Think. You think? Uh, yeah, that that's that's my sense, which is probably unwarranted, but uh, <laughs> but I, I've often thought that how many how few poems there are. Well, now we'll, have to, now we'll have to look up and find poems about the winter. I, I, I like to write, I write a lot about winter myself. I, I just, I just had something published that I had about a, a bunch of winter in it. So, uh, so yeah, I, I like, I find winter to be a very creative time for me. I don't know if, if you have that, but. Uh, oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Well, of course, I've experienced Winnipeg, I've experienced Manitoba winters in both Gimli and Winnipeg because my, my ex-husband is from, is from Winnipeg. So oh, okay. every year for 18 years, we went up twice a year, uh, once to Winnipeg, and then we'd spend like uh, part of the summer, sometimes even part of the winter in, in, even in Gimli. So like they had a cottage there. So I'm familiar with, with the difference mm -hmm. in the winters <laughs> and, the, and the, the epic winters there. But, uh, yeah. So yeah, we. So okay, we're talking about. Um, so I, I read a little bit of um, the vernacular muse and prairie poetry, and um, 
I, so this is my little um, side question that I've come up with here. The inclusion of actual speech descriptions of the prairies could be seen as a way of resisting gatekeeping and privileged schools of thought on what subjects and voices are legitimate in poetry. Do you see the inclusion of the prairies and the speech of prairie people as a form of resistance to, the, to this uh, maybe poetic status quo? For sure. So there's something uh, uh, geographical about it. Part of a social class. I, I came from a, a working class family, and uh, as, as almost everyone else around me when I grew up was from working class family. But there's also a theory of, of language that I, I'm fascinated with: the difference between language in a print culture and language in, in an oral culture. And so I was thinking about what happens in pre. Uh, literate language and what happens in post-literate language. So stuff I'm doing is basically post-literate, but I'm yeah. interested in how looking at oral, real oral, oral cultures, how that might inform the kind of orality I'm interested in in, 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 our, in our time. But the other, also the other thing is it moves you to third, second person pretty heavily. And yeah. the, the lyric that so many people want to write and expect and reward uh, recognize is very much first person and meditative uh, and uh, often landscape based. And I'm really interested in the second person, uh, an engagement, uh, energetic engagement among various figures. Yeah, I like that. I like I, I, I like to write, um, I, I have a section of my book, Kiki, that's a dialogue between uh, um, Bill Burroughs and, and Kiki of Montparnasse, and they're speaking in this kind of, they, it's a cut up from uh, Naked Lunch, so so there's, oh, okay. he's calling him all kinds of names and stuff like that, and he's, he's just kind of above it all. It's like, and then, anyway, I like I like writing um, in other voices, and it's it's a lot of fun to do, and, and yeah. uh, I know it, 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 it's at least for me, it's fun to do it as a writer. And, and, and I certainly enjoy reading it in your work, like the, just reading the different. One of the things I noticed too is, is a lot of the times you'll engage with uh, multiple languages too, like you have some German and some poems, and you know, so I think, and, and some French, and that you play puns with French, and be do becomes bullet do and stuff like that. So it's great, great fun. And right. yeah, I think that's good. I, I have a bunch more questions for the bestiary, but I think we're going to, I'm going to wrap up the bestiary so we can move on to uh, cold press moon if you if that's okay with you if you don't, if you don't mind. Yeah, we can i mean i could probably could. Would say oh absolutely <laughs> there you go <laughs> that's great i can ha hear that yeah, that's great so i i, I like to end uh, talking about a book with just a little a little um word of praise about it so this is my little little bit of praise you have to bear with me here the bestiary is a book of playful humorous and moving poems that evoke mortality communication and living in the now through wordplay and imagery that engages the senses, Dennis Cooley is attentive to the small moments and movements as seen in close-up sketches of animals, memories, and places. I have many, many dog ears in the book for poems that delighted me, made me laugh, evoked sadness, tenderness, joy. So thank you for the, thank you for the bestiary. Wonderful. Well, thank you for those words. <laughs> thank you, you're welcome. Okay, next let's talk about Cold Press Moon, uh, the, the second book that is uh, published recently by Turnstone Press. Would you tell us a little bit about the book? Uh, these are rewritings of uh, what we usually would call fairy tales uh, and rewritings of other fabulous figures. Uh, I, I'd written some fairy tale, I'm calling them poems, but they're really intergeneric. They're, many parts of these things are pretty, pretty, pretty narrative and, and, and prose-based. So yeah. they, they move on, on a lot of territory. But anyway, I've written some passages uh, that play off some of those uh, classical fairy tales, uh, Snow White and uh, and um, and Rumpelstiltskin and the Frog and the Princess and uh, the, a few of those. And I wonder what else have I, I again, as I always say when working things, what else could I do? What else is there? So I said, what about other figures that are fabulous, though they're not part of that repertoire, that canon? So I draw in Frankenstein, yeah. and I draw in Dracula, for yeah. example. Uh, and uh, as I work in these, I move them in and out of, uh, of a, a kind of distant fairy tale land, but I move them into and out of contemporary uh, world as well. So uh, yeah. people are, are uh, watching neon lights in the middle of a, what would have been at least a, uh, at earliest a medieval forest. <laughs> uh, so we get that kind of kind of thing. But anyway, so I gathered these things up in all kinds of directions. Uh, 
and, and, and uh, including a batch of these Dracula poems, <laughs> when I wrote a book called Red. Being Red, yeah. uh, Dracula poems, I had a huge pile of, of uh, overflow, and uh, they've appeared, some of them appeared elsewhere, several of them appear here. And I'm going to read the last poem in this Great. book. It's called Great. Old Time's Sake. You'll go out in a big wave, red flowers splattered onto the wall. I would stake my life on it. You will be gum on a high school gym, and you don't know how to dance. You know better. You know how they come and go, and there you will be among the screws and fertilizer, a cold press moon, a puddle of olive oil, a whirlitzer whirling. Count, you will say in a loud voice. Count, you old rascal, you haven't changed a bit. Now I get a gander, you haven't changed a bit, not in a thousand years. The two of them under the bulky moon, you and the Count shooting the shit, talking big about the good times. That's the last poem in the, in the book. Great. Yeah, it's good. And, and, and listen to that, that uh, how different that is from the, from the other book. Like, you know, that's what amazes me. There's so much difference. Like, there's a lot of similarities in some of the techniques, but their books are totally different, you know, so that's quite great. It's great, but I love reading it. I'm a huge fan of fairy tales. So, so and, and uh, yeah. Seeing Red, I, I, I think, uh, I think that uh, I was, I was rereading Seeing Red and I think Seeing Red is, is still my favorite now of, of your books after oh, all. Yeah, that great, huh? And I, I just love it. And I, again, I have to, even if I'm alone, I have to read the poems aloud to myself. So it's really good. Wow. Uh, but, um, yeah. And I love this one, especially, um, Cold Press Moon. So, um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about what makes you write in a voice other than your own? Pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's, it's fun to say, how can you make other sounds or imitate various sounds? Uh, the, uh, the rhythms you get. Uh, I like to do those rhythms often of, of indignation or, or bewilderment or whatever, saying, what are, what are those sounds and how, what kind of grammar are you running? Uh, you get a, can get quite a different kind of voicing. So it, it's, it, it's, there's a pleasure. It's also a permission. Uh, look, this is not me speaking. Uh, yeah. I don't necessarily even hold these views. Uh, <laughs> I may or may not in part or whatever, but it is not me speaking. Uh, and sometimes you get people confusing that because they're so locked onto the lyric notion yeah. poem. It's, it's, the, it, it's the sincere uh, and authentic voice, intimate voice of the, of the speaker. Uh, so you can write those things, but even they are rhetorical devices, uh, rhetorical structures. Right. But but on the poems, you get all kinds of other poems uh, that uh, would be uh, we have have way back. We have uh, dramatic monologues of Browning, for example. We have Shakespeare. Uh, nobody thinks Shakespeare is a murderer because one of his characters speaks of murdering. <laughs> right. But, uh, and, and 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 so it's easy if you've got a drama. But uh, same for the poetry. Uh, everything is a persona of one kind or another, however close it is to the, to the person who wrote the poem. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it, when you spoke of Shakespeare, I, I, I have to, because you're such a lover of puns, I have to, I have to lay, lay on you my, 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 the, poem, the pun I am most proud of and that caused um, me to drop an English liter literature class at the University of Ottawa. Uh, so I was taking a, a literary criticism class as a, like as a part-time student, mm -hmm. and um, the professor was saying um, a lot of people think that uh, Francis Bacon wrote uh, Shakespeare's uh, right. some of Shakespeare's uh, work, and I said, "Well, it makes sense that Bacon wrote Hamlet," and <laughs> <laughs> so the class yeah. did its. It, the students were good. They they groaned as as a punster needs to have that groan, right? You need that I groan. Bacon was good. Yeah, that's right. It was really good. <laughs> but yes, well, the, the prof uh, was not uh, impressed. And, and he said, I guess he was just joking with me, but he said it was too subtle. And I thought, well, this class isn't going to be any fun. And I dropped the class. <laughs> the poor discouraged. <laughs> that's it. Anyway, that's my, that's my, that's my best. Pun. I, I have, lo I'm a, I love puns. So, um, that's uh, so yeah but about fairy tales yeah so um i was wondering because uh, there's been a lot of retellings of, of fairy tales and folk tales and uh um uh through the through the through time and i was wondering if you if you did any research and reading of other versions or anything while you were working on these or did you just rely on sort of your what you remember in your imagination 
mostly the latter for me. Though over the years, I had yeah. been aware of and written, uh, read some yeah. things. I remember reading Carter way back when. Uh, yeah. And uh, whoever wrote those vampire uh, uh, memoirs or whatever it's called, uh, Vampire Diaries, or whatever. I thought they were terrible, the ones I read. But Oh, like, was it the Anne Rice books? The that's Anne right. Rice? I, I, yeah, read, yeah. I read about 80 pages, and I was almost infuriated. I thought they were awful, and people were raving about them. And maybe now I would like them, but uh, I gave up on them over 20 years ago. Um, so I, so I, I didn't read a lot. Uh, but, um, I mean, I, I, I read and read very carefully Bram Stoker's book, which I think is a very right. good book. Right, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I read that at some point. Yeah, and I uh, watched the Coppola music, uh, uh, movie at the time, which, um, again, I, I liked. Uh, I remember what it was called even now. Uh, yeah, I forget titles to things. I can't, movies uh, especially, I can't remember. And uh, I, mean, I had uh, often read fairy tales and return to them when we read them all the time for our kids who loved them. So I, I actually, I dedicated the book to my wife, Diane, to my two daughters, Dana and Megan. So they were, and they were very pleased that I did that. <laughs> well, and it's, such a, it's, it's a book that, because it's got, it's like what I found really interesting, for instance, is Goldfinger, which is a section from the, from that was done as a chapbook book um, before. Yeah. And also the fact that you've got in, in, you, you've actually referenced fairy tales and things all the way through. Like I, I was just reading, I think, um, just looking at an earlier book. Uh, I can't remember which one, but a very early book. And it had a, had something about Cinderella in it. So you, clearly it's something that you've, it's kind of been part of your thinking, uh, these fairy tales and stories uh, from for a long time as well. Yeah, well, they're so powerful in our culture, aren't they? Uh, that uh, I mean, everybody knows about them and some, some basic features of them. And... Uh, the kind of world that they they present. That's it. I wrote I wrote a story. Um, I, I for about a decade I wrote erotic fiction, and I wrote this story called Cinderella and the Glass Dildo. So that was an <laughs> interesting variation on that tale. But uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, so what what do I have here? I'm just looking at my looking at my notes, making sure I'm not uh, going too fast over them. Uh, so okay, you have. Um, um, I seem to have, okay, so, uh, okay. give me for my, so, yeah, so, um, and what, what you talked about already adding contemporary details to the poems, what, what made you want to bring the contemporary into these uh, old stories? Well, for, for me, this suddenly makes them seem really, really new. I mean, they always continue to be new because they have that appeal that for whatever reasons seizes our imaginations, uh, yeah. and there are all kinds of explanations for that. I, I, I guess many of them psychological, um, many aesthetic perhaps, but I find that kind of a fresh move on this. I, I, I feel the kind of little thrill myself, and I'm sure you, you had this right in your writing, and something, you get something, you say, ah, you know, I, that, I love that one, I got lucky. Uh, <laughs> I like that. Uh, so it happened for me writing uh, part of the um, story of uh, Hansel and Gretel, uh, oh, that yeah. uh, when the uh, the father's waiting for the children to return and he's waiting for him. He, he clicks the porch light on. And I love that. I mean, that, that, yes, huh? they, they, they're, they're in the dark and cold and it's raining and they're lost. All he needs to do. And he's yeah. hoping the kids will come back, clicks on the, on the light. And then yeah. as he, as he, as he moves into the streets, they're filled with the red lights of, of uh, cars passing by the red entrails of their lights. Uh, streaming through the streets, so those kind of things. Uh, I love them. I, I, I find that a kind of renewal of them in various ways that I I like. Perhaps they'd have limited appeal or no appeal to anyone else, but uh, for me, there's a kind of wonderful novelty in 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 the, those kind of anachronisms. Well, yeah, and I think too. The other thing too is, I think a lot of people would find it appealing, but I find it very appealing. But um, the other thing too is, I mean, and, and it's also um, it's what people do. Like if if you're if you're waiting for someone to come home, you turn on the light so they can find, you know, they, so that you can see them if they come, and if so, they can find the place. I mean, th this to me seems like a way of connecting it to people to how people are feeling and experiences that people have had now. So I think it makes sense. Yeah. 
that makes sense. Uh, yeah, that's that's really good. And and in some of the poems, the speaker of the poem discusses the narrative of the poem and story and mentions Cooley by name, which is, uh, as for instance, in the Functions, a great poem. You've included Cooley in previous books too, mostly in a very playful manner, like seeing Red, for example, where a speaker talks about the possibility that Cooley and the vampire are in cahoots, both bleeding heart liberals, which I read. I love that. That was so funny. But so you also have poems where you break the fourth wall and address the reader, playing with the relationship between writer, narrator, and reader. Which I really like. Can you talk about the character of Cooley in, in, in this work and maybe uh, in general in what you do? Yeah, yeah the, part of it derives from that in that sense that I've already mentioned that the that yeah. the world is you invent the world uh, or that you write, rewrite it perhaps might might be a more satisfactory way of speaking about it. It's presented to you. It's written, multiply written, and you're reading it, and uh, then you also write it. You enter the the the, the inscribing, you enter the world of scribing. Uh, so the characters who appear in what you write, including one that nominally as you were related to, are also uh, 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 inventions. That uh, So why not you, you have a, a coolie who writes, you're going to have a coolie character in the, in the book, they, and they'll be related in, in multiple and perhaps uncertain ways. Uh, but as it's going to hold all the time, even if you don't name the author who writes, is not this person Sorry, the, the person in the poem is not the person who wrote the poem. Yeah. Uh, related, but they're not identical. That's it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's But I do. I got this from Tom Wayman, by the way, where okay. I first saw it. I loved it. Tom Wayman is editing in Colorado. All we can do is submit. Wayman is Wayman is editing. And I, I just thought it was hysterically funny. Uh, it's great. I, ha I have a, a poem, a long poem, where the... Um, the um, character of Catherine doesn't like the fact that the author Catherine is writing about her and she's insulting her and complaining the whole time. And, yeah. You know, so yeah. I, I think it's a fun, a fun way of, of dealing with that issue too, of, of, of the speaker and the writer and understanding where, you know, what, not just what the difference is, but what the similarities are that you are reading something that is, that is written by someone from a point of view or from points of view. So I think that's a good, yeah. it's a good playful way of reminding us of that. Uh, I, I guess um, I, I, to, to finish, unless you have anything else you want more you want to say about Cold Press Moon, I'll read my little uh, oh, praiseworthy, praiseworthy paragraph. This is fun getting a chance to do this three times. Okay. Cold Press Moon is a mesmerizing collection of poems made from fairy and folk tales, retold from the perspective of the characters and the stories. In this work, Dennis Cooley creates vivid and cinematic scenes that make this reader feel as if she is in the middle of the story. The poems are infused with startling and original imagery, contemporary references, empathy, eroticism, and humor. So, so that's Cold Press Moon. Thank you very much for that book too. And I guess we can we have time to move on to the Muse Sings if you if you're if you're willing to talk about that now. Happily, uh, absolutely. Okay, so the Muse Sings. I guess we'll start. It was published by At Bay Press also this year. Another another Manitoba press. Would you tell us about the book and read a poem as well? Great. Uh, the um, a, a friend of mine, a, a writer, uh, Karen Clavel, had. Uh, been working on a book uh, called um, Iolair, a long book about a, a uh, wreckage of a Scottish ship after the end of the First World War. A very sad uh, 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 and disturbing story. Anyway, she wrote this marvelous uh, book and published it with uh, at Bay Press. And she said, Cooley, this guy's looking for uh, authors. You, you, you should go talk to him. So I said, well, sure. So uh, Matt Judry, who runs the press, and I met over coffee, and uh, he said, "Well, we, uh, anything you got that you might let, like to uh, have a chance at?" And I said, "Well, I'm working on these muse poems. Got a bunch of muse poems. I could probably get you some." He said, "Well, great." So I worked on it for I don't know half a year or whatever, and and a uh, year, and and sent them in. And anyway, they're upshot of it. Is out came these these muse poems, uh, uh, and uh, he did a beautiful job on on the uh, on the book. I'm very very pleased. Very high quality production. The, uh, so I've got these poems, and you want me to read one, right? Yes, please. All right. Uh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna read you this one. I like this one. I like reading these funny poems. Uh, this is called "He Almost Escapes with the Muse." The plane sputters and coughs, thumps, thumps, 
down the runway. It gasps and lurches slightly to one side, shivers and clutter and consternation. A gaggle of people running clumsily as if they were loose baggage and toe were falling off the cart and a lot of angry poets on a flap, rags in the tail of a kite. The poet and the muse have commandeered a plane and they are taxiing for takeoff, runaways on the tarmac. Come back, you son of a bitch! Where the hell do you think you're going? They flail and shout, stumble, shake their fists, a mob closing on Quasimodo. The poet hunches over the throttle, launches himself against their gravity, begs and calls down affliction upon the weight of the world. The muse puts her left hand on his right shoulder, anxious they will never get off the ground. <laughs> the plane shakes and tremors, sags into a terrible fit of coughing. The ragged pursuit rallies, their spirits lift, they're closing fast, all of them cursing and lurching, swept in their own flighting, the poets worst of all. The plane splutters and begins to slouch into itself, hiccups and dies. You selfish bastard, they holler. What the hell are you doing with the muse? You can't have her all to yourself. She's our muse too, you know. <laughs> That's great. I, 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 that makes me think too of uh, dedications quite a bit because you have, the, you have the, the, in the plane, you know, and the writer in the plane and, the, and you're going oh. to the publishers and things like that. So. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I forgot that, yes. Yes, it's, it's, it was the image because I read that very recently, so I, I immediately made the. Uh, yeah, that one's way back. Yeah, way back, but not for me, right? For me, all the books are as if I'm reading them today. So well, I am reading them oh. today. So even though they're from some time ago, they're I'm reading them as if as if they just happened, you know. So it's, it's an interesting. Yeah, yeah. What a different experience. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to start that as as a trend. Binge watch it. Binge watch a poet. The publishers can use that actually. So then people buy all the books, buy this one particular poet, and then you can binge read. Binge read the. Well, that's that's a, a very different, very special experience uh, to do that sort of thing than read a, you know four poems or or two over there or whatever, that's uh, it, which yeah. is per perfectly fine. And especially when you're someone who writes uh, uh, long poems and poem series. So in that case, like I, for Bloody Jack, I don't have the, mo the more recent. I only have the older edition. So now I want to get the new one for Bloody Jack as well. So um, yeah, so back to the musings. It's easy to, you name specific places and people in your work. And this naming anchors the work and connects it to the real. Another aspect of how your work is connected to the real. And um, names and naming recur in the musings, whether it's trying to name the unnameable or reference to specific writing writers in the collaboration section and dedications to Barbara Schott or Douglas Reimer, Nicole Markotic, and Robert Croach, or, or for instance, the internet muses. So um, why do you think naming is important here and in general in your work? I'd like to write my friends in, or, or, or <laughs> perhaps, perhaps more accurately to include them. Uh, and I think generally they, they're, they're, they're happy with, with the ones that are dedicated, with the in every case except one, I actually uh, I got clear and explicit permission, uh, clearance from the, the people whose names appear. Uh, uh, the other one was because I, I didn't know how to get a hold of the guy. I tried to get a hold of him and, and, and I seemed to have lost him. But, uh, but people were at least willing and I think for the most part kind of pleased to be in, in, included. A few even said, believe it or not, that they were flattered to be included. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps the word is honored, I, I, uh, but it's some kind of word of, of it was positive. Support, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and I think um, I think it does. Like uh, when you when you name pl at places and, and particular uh, places and stuff too in your work, it, it it does kind of anchor the work and yeah. kind of make maybe in some ways things that might be in, invisible for some people maybe they don't know about a place i had a, i went reading the bestiary i had a big conversation with my husband about um, he has family um he's not really in touch with them but he has relatives in uh, southern saskatchewan south of shaunavan and they had farms there oh. so i learned all kinds of things i learned about um the farm car that the kids used to drive and all kinds of interesting yeah, things yeah. And they were all related to the because of your, of your poems. So we went back and yeah. and especially because of, of how you name places in the poems. So I think it's it again it anchors it anchors work to the real. Another, yeah, and you honor those places. Then they say they you they, yeah. they they enter. They're 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 
part of that world that where you remember and you create and whatever that uh, that they become present. I remember Coach would said we uh, for the longest time we couldn't see ourselves in our own literature. Yeah, and uh, how important that is to your sense of purpose and and legibility, uh, participation, whatever. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good point too. Another 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 important part is um, I was thinking about uh, when you said about how uh, Robert Croach how um, um, the other person was saying you pronounce it was it Cratch Cratch something like that. But I always think of Robert Croach as as the crow. He puts the crow in Croach. You know, I was sort of thinking about that too with his name. So anyway, something. Speaking of wordplay. <laughs> the Croach then. Yeah. A wordplay is a major part of your work. And this book feels very much like a kind of sequel to Abecedarium and its heavy wordplay. Um, um, I'm I thinking too about all the games mentioned. I, I reread the book uh, yesterday, The Musings, and I noticed like you, you've got tennis, you've got pool, as well as word games. So that was interesting to notice all of the actual mentions of games. So the wordplay is a delight and also acts as a way to get this reader to slow down for the surprise of encountering an unexpected change of direction due to a line break that changes the meaning of the word or a hilarious pun or witty double entendre. You've said in past interviews that your mother enjoyed playing word games. That was also a big part of my childhood. We just talked about that. Um, so I guess, um, and then you say that um, you might be called a trick. It's one of the reasons why you might be called a trickster in your writing. I, I think I heard you talk about that with the interview that you did with Jonathan uh, Ball on the right. podcast. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that was where I, I might have might have picked that up. But uh, why is being a trickster something you want to do in your work? And how does the tri trickster aspect of the poems in this book engage with the concept of the muse? Is the trickster inspired by the muse or trying to confuse her? <laughs> the, I, the, the, the second part of that is is, uh, is, is really intriguing. Uh, yeah. Uh, to what extent uh, is the is the trickster uh, keeping people off balance, or is you know where, where are we at here, and uh, what's what's happening? Uh, mm -hmm. That uh, that certainly is part of a, a, a or can be a part, a large part of a, of a trickster. Uh, Good part of it. I love game. I love uh, talking about puns. I love nonsense. Uh, yeah. You know that uh, the language is uh, has a plasticity and a and a capacity to expand and move and disassemble and reassemble and spread and contract. Uh, and uh, I think that's at the heart of language. I'm uh, I'm intrigued these days, uh, or again uh, uh, these days from uh, reading um, a after. Uh, 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 Babel, after Babel, uh, Babel, sorry, uh, in which the major argument is that what was at the heart of this, our species of developing its capacities uh, was language, but, but language not as language of truth or information uh, or social contact and so on, or there's various, or, or even imitation, uh, these various arguments that are made that at least after the first level of acquisition, that language has at its heart and most crucially been a site of play and lie and deceit uh, and just supposings and what if uh, and not that but this, uh, how about, uh, so the language of supposition, of uh, speculation, of, uh, of possibility, uh, that that's what sustains the, the, um, us, that capacity to do that. If otherwise you're in a kind of Fixity that means you can't move or adapt or conceive of or create anything else or much of anything else So I like that Yeah, me too. I like that too. That's, that's, that's one of the things I enjoy Yeah, I find it interesting too about the way the muse is portrayed the, the various portraits of the muse in the book She gets to speak herself, you know, she's rebellious. She's indignant too because a lot of times, you know as, You know, I have to admit when I first heard about the idea of, of writing, writing about the muse, I thought of some of those old poems where she's kind of this rarefied, you know, yeah. creature that one worships and, and sort of make, made her seem very um, separate from the, from the, from the, from the creator, the, and rather than the way you've written about her, which is much closer to what, what, what I'm comfortable with and what, what, yeah. you know, what's fun about the book too, is that you've, you kind of brought her down to earth, which is. Well, he, the speaker too, uh, uh, is, is pretty bewildered and uh, uncertain yeah. and 
apologetic or, or you know, whatever's off balance and what's happened. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, all the time, all the time. Um, so I, one of my, I, I really love um, this um, Lorca's concept of the duende. And one of the things he says in there is he differentiates between the angel, the muse and duende. He considers the angel and the muse being outside the self while duende represents the struggle within. I don't know whether, whether or not you're, um, you've read that, but that's, I guess what my point is. I, I, I see like you, um, I see duende in your work as well, the tearing down the scaffolding and the play of it. So I was wondering if you, if you read the book and if, if you, um, um, do you see a difference between the muse and duende at all? And do you see yourself as engaging with duende in your work or is it pretty much the same? Thing to you. I got a, I got a confessed helplessness here. Uh, okay, that yeah, I, I, that's I, I fair. No, and, and I was hoping that, that, you, that you might be able to tell me that uh, I, I don't know those distinctions. Uh, yeah. That, uh, and, well, and I don't know where, the, so I, I don't know how even to try to, in a preliminary way, to respond. What, what would you say? Well, I would say that, that the, the idea of the muse is, is, is one that other writers, uh, like sort of traditional writers, would have used as a kind of external, like we talked about, as something that was external. Whereas for Lorca, it was internal and it's coming from sort of inside the self. And it kind of was a mixture of um, kind of wild impulses, like he, examples he, he gives, for instance, in this essay, The Therian Play of the Duende, which I think you'd like. You, I sent you the link to it uh, in the in the questions. So I hope you'll you'll take a read, even though it's not the greatest, there's a couple of translations of it. I don't I can't speak the, the original. So um, he talks about, uh, say, for instance, a flamenco dancer as she's dancing, who suddenly out of impulse just grabs a set of long knives and starts to dance with the knives and sort of this, this sort of um, playfulness that comes from this impulse within us to create. And also in the force of um, knowing that um, death is upon us and kind of a, a, a kind of a connection with um, what's inside ourselves, but also um, I guess the past and the future and stuff like that. I'm doing a very bad job of explaining it, considering it's something I really love. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's. I wish I had. I should have put a quote from it. But he talks about um, uh, the green, the green-eyed daemon who uh, grabs almonds and all this. It's, I, I guess a lot of it has to do with impulse. But mainly, the difference is external and internal. And and way I see it with the muse sings is that you have actually, to me, because you brought the muse down to earth, it isn't really as much external as as it is in classic yeah. literature. So Okay, that makes sense to me. Uh, thank you. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and and I can see where you might think of that as 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 perhaps uh, uh, applying here in some way or other. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. But Duende is yeah. funny. When you when you listen to the the uh, episode, you'll hear uh, the the opening is a theme song that I, I'm singing. Uh, and uh, one of the things I say is that we one of the things we talk about in the show is Duende. So there you go. You that's really <laughs> why, why it comes up, perhaps. So um, I guess uh, what I'd like to say about the muse sings it is echoes. Uh, the Muse sings echoes of Shakespeare, T.S. Eliot, Hank Snow, Cleopatra, the Apple Computer Store Guy, collaborations in the form of dedications and homages to writers, explores the act of naming and being named, the relationship between the writer and inspiration, sometimes treating the muse as a lover who has rejected advances or a mother who offers comfort or as a companion to play games with, crossword puzzles, word games, as a seeker and re revealer of secrets, as a complainer who scolds the writer for mistreatment. So, uh, so it's a, it's really a, another lovely book, and I was glad to uh, get the opportunity to read it as well. Do you have anything else to say about that uh, book, or anything else at this point? Not particularly. Uh, the uh, I, I guess though I've got this in my mind these days. Uh, what you're doing uh, and what others are doing in in hosting these events is just a wonderful uh, benefit to everybody. Uh, that uh, a difficulty always has been, I think, for writers. I don't know if you would agree, but uh, finding readership audiences is, is really hard. Uh, yeah. That uh, how do how do we know what has anyone done? And and uh, I guess difficulty beyond that, how do you obtain it? But these kind of web uh, casts are a real service and a real benefit to uh, to everybody and they add something that we never had before so even though there are difficulties and losses there's some real gains here so i i, I think it's uh, just uh, exciting what you're doing and i'm very pleased to that have been invited to join you and to be part of this conversation 
Well, thanks a lot, Dennis. It's it's, it's great to have you on the show. I I, I read through so much. You, I want to read like a, a book of essays about your writing. So that I hope that I don't know is if there is such a thing, but if there's not, there should be at least. Not that I know of. There should be, but they, they should be. It should be about. You need someone to write like you wrote about Robert Croce's work. You need to now. Someone needs to write an essay about yours. But I I, I can imagine uh, dozens of es at least of essays about that. You do so much and so many interesting things and. And your work really moves me and uh, delights me. So I'm really glad you, you've come on the show. It's certainly a highlight of mine uh, to have you here. Uh, I want to I ask you too, uh, so you have a reading coming up that uh, I think you've got a launch of The Muse Sings at some point coming up. Uh, it's going to be early December. Uh, we had a date, but we had to rearrange be, uh, because of some technical problems. So, so it, it's... Um, I uh, don't have a date yet, but I'll pass. I'll send it to you, and I'll, I'll try and post it as well as the publisher and the and the host. It's going to be hosted through Magali Robinson Bookstore. Right, right, okay. I'll, I'll make sure to include that, and I'll I'll certainly spread the news and 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 look out for it. I really enjoyed uh, the launch of uh, the Bestiary and Cold Press Moon uh, oh, with Magali Robinson with Nathan Duek, who uh, who I really like. I, I published Nathan uh, one of his. Uh, Poems uh, in um, uh, one of the things I, I run at Experiment O, this online magazine. So uh, I was glad to hear the two of you talk. So it was, it was and, and then hear you read from the books as well. So I, I guess that's it. Thanks to Dennis Cooley for being on the show, to Charles for processing, to Jennifer Peterson for the theme song, and to all of you for listening and sharing the episode. Stay tuned for the next episode with Sasha Archer and, and then the one with Pearl Peary after that. Francis Boyle, and a special episode on the poetic elements of music in December, featuring amazing musician Subraj Singh. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The Small Machine.